I have been a volleyball coach for a number of years, and uh, let me start off with sharing what typically happens when I put new players into the court. Oftentimes, a number of the players would be caught by surprise when an uncontrolled ball came into their direction and they didn't know what to do. <clears throat> they didn't react <clears throat> or they reacted too late and they lost a point. And as the coach, I would always tell them, I don't put you in the court to be a spectator. I put you in the court to play as part of the team. So do not be surprised when the ball inevitably comes to you. And I have this joke with my players. I know because when I say this, they, they laugh knowingly. I say many of you, when you play volleyball, you have a prayer in your heart. You say, please don't let the ball come to me. And with that kind of a negative attitude, when the ball do come to them, they are surprised and they cannot play the ball as they ought to. Now, why, why am I starting off a Sunday sermon telling you about my exploits on the volleyball court? And I'm going to use this analogy on us. All of us are the volleyball players in God's volleyball court. All of us have been called by our Master and Savior out of darkness into His marvelous kingdom. Each of us are sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. This goes on to mean that God can call us, any one of us, at any time He sees it fit to put us on a course for His glory, to do a small piece of work, to do a big missionary journey, whatever it is. And we should not be surprised if God calls upon us. And as the song of preparation, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet to guide us. And very often, God would nudge us sideways or do a detour. Let us not be surprised. And I think more importantly, let us not have the mindset that I'm just a small bit player. Let the captain take the ball. Let the pastors do the work. Let the full-time church leaders do the work. I am just a spectator. We are not. I'm not. You are not. And with that, I hope that you will receive this message not with a half-open ear and say, this is not for me, this is for the full-time workers, I'm not a missionary. No. This message is for me and for you because God in His sovereignty, in His grace, can use any one of us. Recently, I sent out a message to my CG WhatsApp 
that I found to be um, intriguing and enlightening. It says, God often does not um, get people from the pulpits or recruit Christians from the pulpit, meaning, sorry, not from the pulpit, from the podium, the winners, the people with uh, strong personality, etc. But God often recruits people from the pit in the darkness when nobody notices. Okay, so with that, let me just uh, begin. A long trial is what I thought would be an apt sermon title. And the trial goes beyond the individual formal trial that Paul has to face before governors, kings, the Sanhedrin, Jewish leaders, etc. It's the accumulation of the trials that he went to in terms of the difficulties, the dangers, and the challenges. And in this respect, it is a long, long trial, which I will hopefully um, convince us the case when we move on. And I shall. And, and as I was preparing this, I thought I would start with this very well-known verse from Proverbs. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit or acknowledge Him, as in a different verse or in a different version. And He will make your path straight. I, I would rather prefer the version that says, He will direct your paths. Because it's quite easy for us to misconstrue the meaning of Scripture when we read, oh, God will make our path straight. Straight in this sense doesn't mean physically in a straight line that you can see from where you are to where you are going. Straight in the spiritual sense, straight to imply and to mean we are walking the path that God wants us to walk. And we shall see that in Paul's life, his path has been diverted countless times. And on this occasion, in this last one-third or one-quarter of the book of Acts, we can make a case that his direction is straight on. And if we have been following the series, we know that God stood beside him and told him that he wants Paul to testify in Rome. And therefore, we are now in the midst of Paul's long, drawn-out trial, and he knows God wants him to go to Rome to testify. Now, the path of faith it is really not precisely mapped out or not a blueprint. His word is a lamp unto my feet 
And ever since I was in the university when a, a preacher preached this, this imagery has always been in my mind. And I'd like to share it with you. Hopefully, it would help you to have a different perspective of this verse. The, the picture in my mind is that we, we are in a dark place and, we are ca- and I'm carrying this, this oil lamp, much like the kids carry a tanglong during the tapgome kind of a thing. But it's very dim, it's oil lamp, possibly with a shade so that the light does not um, blind the person who is carrying it, but the light is deflected or reflected to the path. And, and I imagine myself holding this, this oil lamp, this giving out the feeble light, and putting it just ahead of me so that there's a spot of light a few steps ahead of me so that I would not stumble, so that I would not step onto a crack or a hole. But that is as far as the guidance and the revelation of my next steps. I will not be able to see 20, 30 meters ahead of me. With each couple of steps that I take, the lamp will move forward with me to show me the next couple of steps. And and that, in essence, is generally how God guides us because it is a life of faith. And, And I was wondering, how would our path of faith look like? And, and I was Googling around and I, I saw this map. Hopefully, the details are not too small that you can see. It, it tells you the total distance on the top right-hand corner or top left-hand corner and the estimated amount of time it would take to go from start to end. And in the middle, there were checkpoints. And it reminds me of the days when I was in school. I was a Boy Scout. And one of the things that we do would be we go on a journey and, and the seniors or the instructors will give you um, map coordinates and we have this photocopy of an ordinance survey map and we have to figure out where we are, where we're we supposed to go and where are the checkpoints we need to visit and, and draw a picture and take some samples to prove that we have been in that place. And pretty much it is something like this map that has, I've used to represent the path that we should take. But the spiritual walk, the spiritual journey that each of us take is not mapped out precisely. I would ask you, does anyone here in the congregation today and those online can tell me that your life is mapped out and you know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, the day after, next week, where you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do, what decisions are you supposed to make? No, that's not how faith works. Faith works when we wait upon the Lord for the next two, three steps in obedience. Yes, I admit many times I have and probably you have heard God's prompting, but we pay no heed to it. We go along our own way. And therefore, we have deviated from the path that God wants us to be. And a shiny example of how a person followed God's promptings and guidance is Paul, as we shall see and as we have seen in the several weeks in the past whenever 
a preacher, um, expo preaches an expository message on, on Acts. It tells you about the life of Paul, how he was turned around 180 degrees on the road to Emmaus when God, Jesus, met him and asked him, why have you persecuted me? So, the answer to a precision map that we have is a no. We do not know what to do. We, do not, we are not told when to go, what to avoid, who to trust, etc. So, I, I want to pose this question to us and to those of us online. So, what, what does your path of faith look like up to this point in your life? Your spiritual path. So you could have been a Christian from birth or you could have been a Christian two years ago or 20 years ago, wherever your starting point is, how, how would you put on paper, a two-dimensional paper, what does your path of faith look like? Is it a straight line? And, and bear in mind, Jesus has asked us to take up our cross daily and follow him. So the Bible is replete with a lot of imagery to tell us that our journey, our spiritual journey is following Jesus. It's a path. It's like pilgrim's progress, if you have read the book. It's all about walking, following Jesus, and taking that path. The path is a narrow path with a little gate, not a wide, straight path. And so we have to be constantly listening to God through His Spirit and to follow Him. So, I'll, I'll give us 10 seconds. What would your mental map of your spiritual path up to this point in life look like? And then I'll show you what I think my path looks like. Here goes. Very Luan. <laughs> it's there, it's everywhere. I, I, I picked this because I saw right in the middle is the lost years. You know, those years when you're lost in the wilderness for whatever number of years. Hopefully not 40 years. This is just a, a, a representation. If any one of you has a path that is point A to point B, straight line, uh, I would like to talk to you after the service and learn from you. How did you hear God's word and know exactly where to go? The big idea then for what I'm going to share is this. Uh, maybe I'll paraphrase Pastor Shen. He likes to say, if you, ever, if you forget everything else, <laughs> remember this. Now, I, I was thinking about what he said, and I said, no, don't forget everything else. Remember as much as you can. But on top of this, hopefully this big idea can help you frame everything else that I'm going to share with you through the Holy Spirit's guidance. It, it's this. God's providence can sometimes make our path go through some unexpected and often unwelcome twists and turns in order to accomplish His purposes. I'll just put it there for it to sink in. You may be nodding internally. Yeah, yeah, no, twists and turns. I Tell me about it. 
but that's God's prerogative. We are the volleyball players. We are in God's army. The ball can come to you and we are asked to move this way or that way or stay put until a time that he asks us to move. Unexpected. A lot of times, unwelcome. You know why unwelcome? Because we want to captain our own life. We want to go here and there. And when, when God deviates us, it's not welcome. And we get off path when we rebel against God. Jonah ran away. I ran away. You probably had run away at some point in your life. Even Adam and Eve ran away to hide. But such is the path that we are on. And before I go to this, will you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning, whether in the sanctuary or whoever that has uh, called in online. We pray your spirit will open up the eyes of our hearts and our minds, that we may perceive the wondrous truth of your law. Help us to catch a glimpse of your hand upon Paul's life as you direct him to Rome. And help us as we look at Paul, how he utterly and completely trusts you in order that he may be a servant to accomplish your purposes. And we pray, dear Lord, that the lessons that we may get from hearing your word will nudge us towards faithfully following you. And in following you, we pray that you would help us to shine a little brighter, that you will help us to salt things around us, the decay, a little saltier to the end that your name and your name alone and your purposes be accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just have two points, a perspective and particulars. The perspective basically means the big picture. I would like to zoom out from the book of Acts, we are in midpoint of Paul's journey or Paul's long trial heading to Rome. And I think at the midpoint is a good time to catch that big perspective and see what is happening, how God's hand has played to turn things around in ways that is possibly very unexpected. And, and as I prepare this, there's so much analogies coming in based on what's happening in our own nation in the recent general election. In the very unexpected way, the polls have given us a government with a coalition that I think very few among us would even pray for, think about, but there it is. And I hope and I pray that we can see God's hand in all of these things. And as I've told many people, that we may not be found to pray against God's will because we want things to be this way and that way. But God's ways 
are beyond man's ways. The other side of the coin is, I hope to zoom in on the verses, on the particulars, on the details. And in both the perspective and the particulars, what lessons can we take from these? And I just cut and paste a couple of pictures and I place it below this. Uh, the one on the left is uh, the forest. The one on the left is a big forest. And, and the one on the right is uh, an individual tree. And often we hear people say, we miss the tree when we see the forest. Or we, we, see, we, we see the tree but we forget the forest. And I think in these, these two, there are separate lessons. Lessons that are intertwined. Lessons that are mutually supportive. And hopefully as we go through chapter 25, as was read for us by our sister, that we can catch a glimpse of the large perspective as well as the particulars. So in chapters 21 to 28, that's eight chapters out of the 28 chapters in Acts. And if you do the math, it's slightly more than a quarter. 7 times 4 is 28, this is 8 chapters. Slightly more than a quarter of the book of Acts, this is not the Bible, this is the hymnal, I'm just using this as an illustration, is about Paul's trials that led him from the point of his arrest all the way to Rome. Now, why did God include or allow the writer to pen so many chapters a quarter of the book on Paul's trials leading to Rome, where he is supposed to testify. What is the purpose of all this? And I'm asking this que these questions so that we step back and look at the perspective, the big picture. Why is God putting all these in, in the Bible preserved for us so that today we can read and know that these are the things that has happened to Paul. There must be a reason. There's always a reason. The author of the word has a reason why these incidents are preserved for our reading and for our guidance. Hopefully, we can uncover some of these reasons. In the course of these eight chapters, we, we see Paul being arrested he was beaten, he was chained, I think two chains, right? And, and plotted to be killed. Um, there's this group of 40 assassins that took a vow, we will not eat or drink until we have killed Paul. Now, two years later, I wonder if they are still alive. <laughs> 40 assassins who took the vow. And we, we, shall, we have heard it being read for us that they were trying to get Festus to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so that on the way they will pounce on him, ambush him, and the 40 assassins would have completed their vow. But anyway, he was imprisoned in various places, firstly in Jerusalem, then brought to Caesarea, and later on, we shall see what happens to him. Did he go to Rome? That's not for me to say, that's for the other preachers. We know that Paul, in the various circumstances that he found himself in, upon his arrest, he testified to whoever that he is able to testify. Even when the crowd with the Sanhedrin, when, when the Roman centurion pulled him away, he asked for permission, can I speak to the crowd? 
And when he spoke to the crowd, he literally testified of what Jesus had done for him and of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So he used every opportunity to testify to the crowd, to the Sanhedrin comprised of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to Felix and his consort Drusilla, to Festus who replaced Felix, and then later to King Agrippa and Bernice. Interesting story about Agrippa and Bernice. Again, I'll leave that to future speakers. David Thompson is a biblical uh, commentator, and I've actually quoted from him several times in the past. And, and uh, it's a long quotation, so I've actually truncated and adapted it so that it can fit this page. And, and the gist of what he says, and I'm going to share with you, is this. So he asked the question, why is God permitting an innocent man, Paul, to go through all of this? Why? There must be a reason. His sovereign plan, God's sovereign plan, that's the answer, is to get Paul to Rome. But before that happens, God wants Paul to testify to some of the most powerful people in that part of the world, in that time of history. And therefore, you see Paul testifying to governors and kings and leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is the purpose. After his testimony, this is back in chapter 23, to the Sanhedrin, the Lord stood near Paul and told Paul this, take courage, do not lose heart. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the turning point where Paul now gets a very clear direction from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus himself. He says, the Lord stood near Paul. It's not the Holy Spirit, it's the Lord himself in, in, in an appearance spiritually uh, uh, before Paul. And Paul would not mistake the Lord because the Lord confronted him on the road to Emmaus. So he would recognize the Lord. And this is what the Lord told him. As you have testified about me, in Jerusalem, to Rome, you will go. And I firmly believe the words of the Lord to him was what prompted Paul to appeal to Caesar because Caesar sits on the Roman throne in Rome. God wants to show that Paul is innocent against all the charges not just for Paul to testify in Rome, but to testify before the Sanhedrin, to, the, to Festus, to Felix, and to Agrippa, and to whoever comes near him, he would testify. And it's important that the Bible has recorded these incidents because Christianity needs to be shown to be not against the law, politically or religiously, or against customs. You would remember not too long ago, a prominent leader of our nation came up with a statement about the Christian church and what it purported to be doing to undermine the country. And the church 
Council of Churches came out with a statement to refute that. And what's happening to Paul is that he stood before the religious and the political leaders to prove his innocence. And we read that they couldn't find any proof. So it's important that we have these passages for us so that Christianity is absolved of all blame. And in Paul's defense, he said this, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. I have done nothing wrong. This is chapter 25, verse 8. His defense is against apostasy, which is the Jewish law. Against sacrilegious desecration of the temple and against treacherous revolt against the emperor or political revolt. The nation of Israel, the Jews, is under rule of the Romans. So in these three areas, the law, the temple, and the emperor, he has done nothing wrong. That is his defense. And so God put him on the path to testify his innocence in the legal or Jewish legal system at least, the religious and the political standing of that day. And all this is recorded for us so that it can, we can read it and it points out to us the power plays and the tensions between the different parties. If you remember when Paul was given permission to speak to and he testified to the Sanhedrin, he used certain um, words that got the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be uh, quarreling among themselves. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And you would see time and time again in Paul's testimony, he testified to the, testi to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I, I think someone said they are Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection, though they are very sad, you see. So that helped me to remember what the Sadducees' belief system is. They reject the resurrection. And, and what are these power plays and tensions? And I, and I think the, 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 eight, ver the eight chapters um, show us, if you read behind the stories um, and, and read at the different uh, factions, the different groups, the political, the, the religious, the, the Jewish nations and all that, we will see there's tremendous tension and power plays. And, and these are what I have listed. There is tension and, and, and power plays between the Jews and the Roman authorities because the Romans are the conquerors and the Jews are always fighting for independence. Okay? So there's this very clear power play and tension between Jews and Romans between Christians and unbelievers. Uh, the Christian church is being formed, right? And, and of all people to carry the gospel, God used Paul, the persecutor of the church, and turned him around. At this point, I'll just make a very blunt, very, very hinted analogy. I, I've told some people in my care group that I believe a certain person in, in the government leadership would, cannot change. A, a, a leopard cannot change 
its spots. But I was deeply convicted in the past few days as I was preparing this. If Paul can change so drastically, anyone can change, provided the Lord moves him, changes him, convicts him. There's tension between Jewish and Gentile interests, not so much on the religious ground, but on cultural and customary grounds. There's tension. What practices can we do, not do? And among the Sanhedrin themselves, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, as I pointed out earlier, and most of all, between Satan and God's agenda. Remember in Romans we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of the air. That's where the battle is being fought and won. So do we then, the application I, I just want to share with us, do we then understand the tensions and struggles in our nation today? And again, this is the second time I was rebuked as I was preparing this because I have up to a certain point in my life tend to put out my hand and say, politics is not for me. I'm not interested in what's happening. My, my dear wife would go to all the YouTubes and WhatsApp and she will, she will tell me who is who and what is what. And I would say, ah, you, 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 you tell me, like what, give me a, a summary. But you know something? The way the Bible has put all these tensions, maybe not explicitly, but behind the passages and the stories. At least my own conviction is that as responsible Christians, we should be knowledgeable. We should not um, be a ostrich sticking our head in the ground and don't, don't care what's happening as long as I can do this and that. I think we are meant to engage actively in the political process, not to be in politics, although some of you may be called to be Daniels and Pauls, but to be involved actively and responsibly in the political process. And for that, we need to understand the power plays, what coalition, what do they want, and what, what are the dangers, and, and how to be wise in our council and how to be wise to be the salt and the light. Because, like it or not, we are in this nation, and we need that understanding to maneuver, to be sensitive to how God can lead us and guide us. The first, I only have two application or discussion question is this. How can we remain steadfast and true in our witness when He directs our paths to where we do not want to go? Um, I, the kids are not here, so those at home can read it. We have two minutes.
Next, we go to the particulars, the details. D don't worry, I'm not going to drill too deep into this. So we see that Festus replaced Felix. And, and if you look at um, what Festus did and the time frames, it, it is stated in a matter of days compared to years. So in that sense, Festus acted quickly and decisively. And, and that's one of the reasons that Festus was put in place to replace Felix, because Felix is a man of no action. So I would like to say that Festus is the fastest. Three days upon arrival, Festus went to Jerusalem and met with the Jewish elders and chief priests. Three days. New government, three days. Not a hundred days, three days. And then 10 days later, he returned with them to Caesarea and held court to hear Paul's defense. Now, I dug, dug up from Google Maps and all that. It's a two-day journey right, from coastal Caesarea up to Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea is somewhere on the, the top right, and then Jerusalem, you, you, you have to go down north, uh, southwest, right? And, and Jerusalem is on a higher elevation. Uh, I made the mistake of maybe using an, uh, the wrong search words, and when I, when I asked the question, how, how long does it take? Is it take six and a half hours? Then I look carefully, by car, right? So <laughs> then I've got to re re redo my search in the Old Testament days. Then it came out two days. And, and probably they have to spend one, one night at Antipatris because it's about 26 miles and 38 miles. So it takes two days. By no means an easy journey. I still remember when I was a kid when my dad drove us to Singapore. We have to stop in KL to Berehat because the old trunk road takes six, seven, eight hours to go to KL and then one night and then to go to Singapore. But today, I, I won't ask how fast some of you drive, but you can get there much faster. But it took two days for Festus. And we have heard it read for us that the Jews or the Sanhedrin, the authorities, the Jewish leaders, are still bent on killing Paul. This is two years later, you know. Because remember when Felix left, he left uh, Paul in the, the dungeon or jail or, or house arrest for two years, waiting for Paul to bribe him, remember? And then he was ousted and then Felix came. So those 40 assassins, still alive miraculously, continue to want to carry out their threat. Not threat, their, 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 their oath to kill Paul. And they hoped that Festus would send Paul back to Jerusalem so that they could ambush him and kill him. They counted on the political favor from the newly appointed Festus. So everywhere you read, there's politics. 
A new governor would want to gain the support of the Jews because without the support, he cannot succeed. In our nation, when a new government is formed, there has to be some political favours. You can see that all in social media. Why does he choose it? Why so many? Why so little and all that? Trust that God is in control. If we, someone said, if you want to form the government, you run for election and you win and then you decide who your cabinet is. Then keep quiet. But we need to trust God in His sovereignty and His providence. So they counted on Paul, uh, on, on Festus to give them political favour. And, and we read in the scriptures that Festus also wanted to do a favour because that's how things work. I scratch your back and you scratch mine. I think Christians are not very much into scratching backs. I don't know. But it remains to be seen. But the question I want to ask ourselves is this. Why would the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, why would they want to pursue that two-year-old plot to kill him if they have proof of all the charges against him? Why take the risk of committing murder and getting the Romans to act upon them if they can prove that Paul is guilty of all the charges. The fact is that they can't, and the only way to silence him is to kill him, innocent. They don't want him to be put on trial, but God has other plans. God wants him to be on trial not only in Caesarea or, or, or Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome. So the Jews stood around Festus, uh, sorry, uh, around Paul, bringing many serious charges they could not prove. The charges levied at him is that Paul, in his response, in his defense, says he didn't do it. And they, the Jewish authorities, can't prove it. But the real charge that we can levy against Paul is this, that it's Paul's testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can go through some of these verses. It will tell you that in his testimony, more often than not, he would include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gets the Sadducees mad because it is heresy. That is the real charge they can levy against him. But Paul would be the first person to admit that yes, he believes in the, in the resurrection because Jesus met him not once but twice. But he can't prove it. Paul can't prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at least materially. And, and mankind has been debating, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? A lot of your non-Christians, friends, I know mine do, prove that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't. There are circumstantial, there are arguments and logics that tells you that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But in a court of law, I think there was a very non-Christian, non brilliant lawyer 
who decided to take a case against Jesus' resurrection, and at the end of his criminal investigation and all that, he became a Christian. I can't remember the name. Is it Josh McDowell? Something like that. That Christ rose from the dead. What an irony. The charges that the Jews levied against Paul, which he didn't do, they can't prove. The true charge of Paul stating the resurrection of Christ, he can't prove. The only proof that he has and you and I have of the resurrection of Christ is our life testimony, is our witness as we walk with the living God in our lives, following him in the path that he takes us. That is about the only proof, a changed life, a conviction that bears the mark of Christ upon us. Paul, at that point, is as ready then as he was back in chapter 21, when his friends were all around, no, don't go. And he, he said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. Remember his response to Festus, if I'm guilty of these things, I'm not afraid to die. So that hasn't changed. And he says it boldly and with deep conviction because he knows he's innocent. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was innocent. Paul is innocent. And we know that he too would lay down his life. Why? Because Paul followed Jesus. The path that Jesus took, Paul took. So should we. I'm not saying that we all should die. We all will die one day, but I think you know what I mean. So at that point of time in chapter 21, the Lord has not yet stood beside him to tell him that he wanted Paul to testify in Rome. That's why in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, 21, he says, but also to die in Jerusalem. So he thought his path is to Jerusalem until two chapters later, after his testimony to the Sanhedrin, that the Lord revealed to him. He wants him to go to Rome and along the way to testify to governors, proconsuls, and emperors and to the representative of the Roman Empire. So Paul is not going to just recklessly, cheaply give up his life for nothing. He states his case. He says to Festus, I stand before in Caesar's court and if no proof can be found, no one can send me to Jerusalem. His given path from chapter 23, now he knows, and he holds that so closely in his heart of hearts, is that he needs to obey God and to testify in Rome. And therefore, he used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And what, what did Festus say? To Caesar you appeal, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So that decision of Paul to appeal to Caesar we shall see later on in chapter 26. Another speaker will bring this up, hopefully. That was a decision that really cost his freedom. Because chapter 26, verse 32 said, I think it was a conversation between Festus and Agrippa. If he had not appealed to Caesar, he would have been set free. But because he appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he would go to Rome. 
which is where God wants him to be. So you can see the commitment, the obedience of Paul. Even if he could be free, he would not. He stayed true to the path that God wants to direct him to. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, here you go, political favors, he, he told Paul, uh, so uh, are you willing on your own volition to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial? If, if Paul had said yes, he would have been murdered along the way. Remember, this is a two-day journey. It's not traveling in a, in a car at how many kilometers an hour, you know, uh, <laughs> that you need a marksman. to. They, they are traveling on foot or on horseback. It's very easy to ambush in those days. Not so easy now. So Festus tried to push back to make it to become a religious trial. Festus is smart. If not, he wouldn't be, be uh, placed to replace Felix. He, he is a political appointee to govern Jews. And he doesn't want his early days of his governorship to be mired in political mess as this is. So he tried to push back. If you go to, to Jerusalem, then you'll become a religious trial. And I'm a Roman. This is your business. And if anything happens, he can wipe his hands or clean of the guilt. So he wanted to make it to be a religious trial before the Sanhedrin, but he will, he will reside over that trial. Instead of a political trial where his decision will be scrutinized by the Roman uh, government in Rome. And so he tried to push back. But Paul said no. Paul appealed to Caesar. Just want to give you this. So in Acts 24, Paul was in jail in Caesarea. He had no way to get to Rome. Now, Acts 24, he already knows that the, the, the Lord told him he wants, you to go to, he wants him to go to Rome. But how can Paul, a prisoner, go to Rome? I mean, if you are a prisoner, you are a prisoner. You have no rights of freedom. So that's the dilemma that Paul finds himself when he was in, when he was in, in Caesarea, in jail. But then, chapter 25, God moved in a mysterious, in a fantastic way. There's a change of government. Out goes Felix, in comes Festus. And Festus is different from Felix. Festus upheld the Roman law. Felix just wanted a bribe and would throw him in prison. If Paul were to appeal to Felix, to, um, to Caesar, I do not think it would have been granted. But then that's just my, my guess. There, there were commentators talking about this and other. But there's a change of government. And dear people, we have a change of government too. Something that, I don't know, I've yet to come across a Christian who tell me, we prayed for this and it happened. But things can happen if we continue to trust God and pray. So now Paul's appeal takes him to Rome to appear before Caesar or the representative of Caesar. Then Paul has another opportunity to testify. 
as we read in the second half of chapter 25. And this time, before royalty, none other than King Agrippa, who had come to Caesarea to pay a courtesy call on his subordinate. So, King Agrippa is the superior of Festus. So, you have a new political appointee, the king comes and, you know, uh, touch base and, and, and do, do whatever is necessary. It's, it's just like um, when, when, when Anwar becomes the uh, prime minister, there, there is uh, congratulatory messages from leaders from different worlds. Some, one leader from East Malaysia in Brunei also came over to, to congratulate him in person. So King Agrippa came over, courtesy call, to show Festus that I have your back or I support you. What can I do for you? But then, all these things is actually God's hand at work. So Agrippa, for whatever reason, he was actually very interested in the Jewish religion uh, as a king. He is known to be an authority on Jewish religion practices and so on. So Festus also know that. And because Agrippa is here and he's caught in a dilemma how to give Paul a trial that he would be successful as the new governor. His first act of governorship is to preside over Paul's very complicated trial. So he hoped to be able to get help from Agrippa so that when he write his report to Rome, it would be one that has King Agrippa's uh, advice and he would not do the wrong thing because he is not an authority in the Jewish religion as Agrippa was. So how convenient it is just when Festus needed help, King Agrippa was that help. So are, they, are these things just a convenience or is it God's hand? You tell me. So the second part of chapter 25, Festus met with Agrippa and Festus summarized or outlined the case of Paul. And he said, he, to quote, a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Let me say that again. This is what Festus said to Agrippa. A dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. You know when I read this, in the first time when I read this, it didn't mean anything. Then there's a read. You know what's happening here? <laughs> Festus is giving Paul's testimony of Jesus' resurrection to Agrippa. Wow. God can work through all these things. And because of this dead man coming alive and King Agrippa's knowledge of the Jewish religion, who would, he would know of the prophecies of the Old Testament, of a Messiah, of a resurrection. He said, I would like to hear this man myself. So the door is open for Paul to testify to a king. How many of us can testify to a king, a non-Christian king? But God, in the way of His providence, moved things around, new governments, new things, allow Paul to bear witness and testify 
to some of the most important and powerful people in that region, two governors and a king, before going to Rome. The final question is, how can we press on? How can we keep going forward and to keep our hopes when things appear so bleak, so dark, and the task ahead seems unsurmountable? I wonder if you ask Paul, what would his answer be? No matter how bleak, how difficult, I don't think any one of us in any circumstances that we have been in or are in or will be in can match what Paul went through. And yet, he pressed on to the goal. Two minutes. To close, know that God is sovereign in the way He unfolds His will for Paul, for you, for I. Be prepared to testify faithfully should God redirect your path to achieve His purpose. Do keep the faith. Fight the good fight and finish the race. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty and by your grace, you provide. You direct our paths. And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters here. I pray that you will help us realize that your ways are beyond our ways. And oftentimes when 
our path seems to go astray, or when we are faced with an obstacle that forces us to a direction we do not want to go. Help us that before we complain to people and to you, to check ourselves and ask ourselves whether that would have been your direction, that you want us to go a different path. And I pray that, Lord, you will help us that we may have an increase in our faith and to see things not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. And that you will synthesize our spirit, that we can hearken to the still small voice of your spirit speaking to us. And Lord, we know too sometimes then when you whisper to us and we ignore you, you bring the hammer down on us and force us to a direction we don't want to. Now, even then, Lord, many of us, given the free will, can rebel and choose to still proceed in our own ways. And for that, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and give us an increase of your faith and trust that you are no man's debtor. So help us to walk not by sight, but in faith. And we pray that the lessons that you have shown us in the big perspective and in the particulars and see your hand directing Paul all the way to Rome, we pray you too will grant us that courage, that steadfastness, and that desire to obey you. For in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Our closing song is taken from 714.